Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A quick word to let you know that if you pledge $10 or more to the Creative Control Patreon page throughout April 2017, you will receive one Creative Control t-shirt while supplies last. I have the maroon one with my head on it, and the sort of yellow one with the pizza lettering, and in unisex, small, medium, large, and extra large sizes. So if you'd like to support the show and receive a small, medium, large, or extra large token of my appreciation... Visit patreon.com slash creative control to view the shirts and pledge $10 or more today. Thanks! Robbie Folks is a brilliant singer and songwriter who is based just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Here's a little bit of a song of his called Alabama at Night. A red tail hawk sat watchful at the faded edge of day. The phone poles and the pines rose from the scoured clay. The sun was slipping toward the gulf in its own good time. And you would not think of death if you drove on past the signs. The old men at the roadhouse weren't too polite to stare. Where we'd come from wasn't home, and we were far from even there. The camera around my neck drew suspicious eyes to me But we were not there to talk, we were only there to see When their faces had said nothing It was that I stepped outside And in the instant I knew I would not forget the sight Alabama had Alabama at night. That song is from Folk's latest album, Upland Stories, which was nominated for two Grammy Awards at the 2017 ceremony and was released by Bloodshot Records and then earned its spot on best of 2016 album lists compiled by the likes of Rolling Stone, NPR, The Guardian, Salon, Chicago Tribune, and more. Upland Stories is certainly a favorite around my house, so I made an effort to connect with Robbie recently, and he and I discussed things like the way people listen to music and each other these days, his interest in the second city, and 
his time teaching Tina Fey how to play guitar 20 years ago, talking with Trump people on the road and working with Steve Albini for almost 20 years now, seeing Bruno Mars and Beyonce live at the Grammy ceremony and the impression that made it on him, what the word schmoz might mean, and much more. Sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, please listen to myself in conversation with the great Robbie Folks on Creative Control. Through sunlit rooms the wealthy walk And the pale unshaven men To stand before each frame Five seconds, maybe ten And to unveil all the maker wanted to portray But I'm not there to talk And if I were, I wouldn't say Hi, Robbie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well. It's very, very nice to have you on our show. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah. Now, first of all, where in the world are you? I'm at home in my basement in Wilmette, Illinois, just a little bit north of Chicago. Nice. How long have you been there? In the basement? About uh, five <laughs> minutes, but <laughs> in Wilmette for about 12 years. Only they f- keep me chained down here, but I'm trying to bite through the chains. <laughs> they keep you chained for five-minute increments? Is that what you're saying? It's like <laughs> exactly. a weird... A weird well, pres- in this case, for about an hour increment, but yeah. <laughs> well, sorry, how long have you... Sorry, I missed all that because I was fixated on the five minutes, but where? how long have you been there in, in Wilmette? <laughs> for about 12 years. 12 years, okay. And, and what brought you there? Interestingly, yeah, what brought me here to Wilmette? It was there was a good school system here, and uh, we had some friends that lived here, and we were living far outside Chicago. It was about a turning into a two-hour commute for my wife, who works in Chicago every day. So, we wanted to move to a little bit of a closer suburb, and that's what uh, that's what brought us here. Okay, and and you, but you you've lived in you lived in Chicago proper. You were saying for some time, right? Uh, yeah, I moved to Chicago in 1983 when I was 21, and uh, um, or rather 20, and then um, uh, moved to the suburbs, I guess, in 96, and have been flitting about from one suburb to another since then. Okay, and we, you moved from New York City, did you? I did. Yeah, and, and but that's not where are you actually. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm com- kind of from different places. I was born in York, Pennsylvania. And uh, we lived there for uh, about three years, and then we started moving uh, about once a year, sometimes more frequently than that. And um, we moved generally kind of southward, and uh, by the time I was in junior high school, we were in North Carolina, which is where my parents stayed for the next 20 years. So um, to make a long story uh, short but still boring, (laughs) uh, I, I... my sort of hometown allegiances are divided between, um, you know, Pennsylvania and and North Carolina. But really, at this point, having lived uh, much, much longer than anywhere else in Chicago, I'm pretty much a Chicagoan. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. But it does sound like you were likely exposed to uh, different cultural forms in all of these places. I mean, uh, they're, they're different places, right? Uh, yeah, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, which are the three states uh, that I lived in from uh, zero to seventeen, um, kind of culturally different. But uh, but I lived in a variety of small towns, and um, uh, so it, it wasn't 
maybe it wasn't as different as one cosmopolitan, like moving from Boston to Sacramento, say, um, or, or even you know Boston to uh, to uh, Portland, Maine. Um, I, I think that uh, I lived inside my head for a lot of the time when I was a kid. So uh, so my environment, I think, was more conditioned by books and music and what went on in the privacy of my room and my head than than stuff going on outside. You, you were something. You weren't. Well, are you? Are you sort of suggesting you were sort of introverted? Exactly. Yeah, you were. Okay, you were. You were totally lost in in imaginary worlds, <laughs> as opposed. Well, yeah, to... <laughs> not totally. I mean, I had some friends from time to time, but not a ton of friends, and uh, not a ton of uh, social life. So, uh, so, and and then once I started playing music, then that you know that took up, um, you know, a couple hours a day of that. So, uh, yeah. So the outside world was a was a smaller influence, I would say. I would think that if you lead a, a, a transient childhood, that your relationship to each place you're actually calling home is is at least a little distant, right? You just you don't you don't get as attached as you might if you're, you know, spending long periods. Of t- I mean, it sounds like you spend a, a fair amount of a lot, the most time in North Carolina uh, growing up. But uh, do you think that? Any of that transience contributed to your, let's not call it lonerism. I don't want to make you sound like you have issues, but uh, it, <laughs> it does seem like that that might have been a, con- a contributing factor, right? A contributing factor to um, just to your my, um, you, ultimate you, identity. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. As someone who treats uh, the places you're in with, uh, like I say, a little bit of at least a little bit of distance. Yeah, I guess my experience of it was that I didn't reflect on it. I think uh I think my and my memory of my childhood was that I wasn't um reflecting on it deeply at the time and that I've spent a lot of the years since thinking about it about uh how that how the, the way that I grew up uh um contributed to my um idea of myself um and I think that uh I mean and my conclusion is that all that moving around and rootlessness did uh root me more deeply into um, culture, into into books and music, and that um, living a little bit in the north and in the south, and then you know all my adult life in the north, um, gave me uh, a little bit of divided. Uh, you know, it gave me a, a sympathy with southern culture, but distance from it too. Right, and I mean, in in sort of the biographical words about this record, the latest record. Uh, Upland stories. There's there's discussion of the fact that you are in a more reflective mood than maybe you have been in the past. Is that is that the case? Oh yeah, I think so. I think um, you know you can only just write from from who you are, and uh, and at 53, it's it's just not the same as at 23. Do you think of it as a departure, though? I mean, I would think that no matter what your your age or your experience, you are always sort of reflecting on your life when you're expressing yourself artistically. Do you think that's fair? Or did you feel like you were more, you had a narrower view of maybe your own life and the world uh, uh, until more recently? Um, I feel like uh, there was a definite point at which uh, I wanted to shift gears, and that was about uh, 10 years ago uh, when I started working more and writing the kind of music that I'm that I've done on the last two records, and um, and to a smaller extent on my uh, fifty-song download of 2009. Yeah, and um, 
so the point came when I had done the same sort of on-the-road presentation for about 15 years, which was a uh, electric guitar and acoustic guitar and bass guitar and drum set. And uh, and I was tired of that, or tiring of it, and uh, and was feeling a little bit creakier in my bones, and um, was thinking about what I might do to make myself happier with just being on the road, and um, found out that uh, through a sort of providential uh, um, series of gigs where I was sitting down and uh, playing acoustic guitar into the microphone, I thought, aha, I'm really enjoying this a lot more, and it also connects to what I was doing when I started out, when I was, you know, 10, 15, 18 years old, as far as, you know, not playing with a drum set and with a big, loud quartet, but doing something uh, uh, a little bit more, uh, what would you call it, I guess, bluegrass-ish, not exactly bluegrass, but something a little more Doc Watson-ish, I, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. If your listeners know about Doc Watson, so um, anyway, I found that I was instantly happy doing that kind of thing, and so that was the little click that uh, that moved me on to where I am now. It sounds like among the things that made you happy there was just the simple act of sitting, just just sitting down, you know, re- being a bit more restful in your presentation. I think it was even more the audience sitting because um, because I do far more of my gig standing than sitting, you know, like I, I would say even ninety ninety out of 95 gigs I do standing up but um, um, when the audience is sitting uh, they listen and when they stand often they tend not to so um, you know I I think there was a moment when I thought well this is a little bit self-indulgent to demand that all audiences listen quietly to what I do but (laughs) for better or worse that's the way that I wanted to go I thought I'm just going to go with this uh, supposition that what I do is worthy of listening to and ask that of the audience because I mean it sounds goofy but in general, I wasn't playing to listening audiences through a lot of the 90s and aughts. Right. People weren't as into the listening as they were moving around a little bit in some way. But we were all younger, and we were all yeah. drinking more, and we were standing up, and we were having fun. And and uh, so, uh, yeah, that that got a little bit... Uh, I, I saw that and had enough of that after a while. I think you might have been onto something. I feel like uh, listening habits are really on the decline, even when I go to shows or... Uh, when you hear how people actually consume music now and and how it's been kind of undervalued and relegated to the background, I don't think people are listening as much. So I feel like you, like I say, you might have been on to something there, just picking up on that. Well, maybe it's uh, being a little bit of an old fart. You know, my wife went to see this uh, band. We both like the band Bad, Bad, Not Good. And oh, we yeah. were introduced to it by my, uh, yeah, they're from up there, right? They're from I mean, Toronto. I know those guys. Yeah, they've been on the show. They're fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we love their records, and you know my son introduced me to them, and uh, and my son and my wife went to see them recently, and uh, I I would love the uh, option of going to see them and and listening, but m- as my wife reported, it's not it's not exactly an option. You get you get physically tossed off your feet and mauled at their shows. You know you can't sort of avoid the the pit. Um, <laughs> but what was I going to say? And a related experience, um, going off of your comment, was that. Uh, I did two gigs uh, recently opening for uh, a band called Old Crow Medicine Show, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. did them in New England. And uh, it was a perfect experiment of what we're talking about because the first night was in a theater that was all seated, and the second night was in a similar-sized theater where it was mostly standing. And uh, and I just could not, uh, as an opening act, I couldn't 
approach the noise level, I couldn't communicate with more than the first couple rows of the standing place, and I and and I really bombed where I went over quite well at the seated place, and uh, and I walked away from the experience a little bit uh, unhappy with myself for not having just plugged in and made more noise and realized what the situation was going to be like. But an interesting footnote was that I was back in the same city, for, uh, Portland, Maine, where. Uh, that theater, the State Theater, the Standing Theater, uh, is located. I was there last week, and I went to see uh, Regina Spector play. Mm -hmm. And now I was in the audience watching the performer deal with the same thing, and the same conditions kind of applied, even though she was the the headlining and indeed the only act. And uh, but the audience was so loud that she stopped in the middle of a song and said, "I'm having trouble. Please, please quiet down." And uh, she presented it in a few short, polite sentences went back to playing and the audience kind of died down the noise died down for a little bit and then it you know a minute later it rose back to where it was so it's just the nature of the room it's a little bit of a mystery but the room the environment and the fact of standing up creates uh, a great difficulty sometimes yeah I, I just wonder if that's also symptomatic of our general issues with volume these days I mean so much Political right. discourse occurs where people are just shouting over each other and not really listening to information, <laughs> not really taking the time to process what's in front of them. They're just waiting to speak um, or waiting for their turn. And I, I don't know. I, I'm not a I'm not a cultural theorist or a psychologist by trade, but I do think that something is going on in terms of how we interact with each other in public spaces. And I think musicians might have been the first or any you know, you hear about it in the theater, too. Just people not having the decorum, it seems, to live among each other in a civil manner. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it seems like you're speaking to that a little bit. I mean, I think environment is kind of so consequential that, um, you know, from the performance end, most of the time I can I can make people be a little quieter by being, by being a little bit quieter myself. Until, you know, there's a tipping point and at the point where you're in a room like um, the one that I mentioned that's uh, that's so conducive to noise and uh, partiness, uh, you can't uh, you can't uh, do that uh, strategy. But I think that the same person that's at a Trump rally that could be, you know, uh, goaded into um, smashing somebody in the face, you know, if that rally is transported to a different kind of a room and a different kind of uh, um uh, um, context, uh, just a uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, to use the most generalized <laughs> <laughs> bland word. Uh, hey, I was, I'm just trying person, to help here. <laughs> I know <laughs> you are helping with my blandness. When that same person <laughs> behaves quite differently and would never consider doing the same thing that he would do in another circumstance. So, um, uh, so yeah, I think the room. Is really consequential. Yeah, and I think, it, but I do think that that bland word context might be relevant just because, I mean, comedians go through this all the time, hecklers, people having the audacity to actually try to be part of the show. I mean, you don't have that necessarily. Does that happen to you? Do you feel like you, you end up with people who are so... In a comedy club it does, but again, I mean, the whole, the whole context is, you know, the person in his head when he walks in the room is I'm walking into a comedy club and that brings up all these other associations and part dictating the behavior hmm. um, 
of the spectator. But, you know, I'd spend so much time these days playing in these sort of, you know, tea and cracker, she-she <laughs> listening rooms <laughs> that as somebody heckled or, um, or uh, you know, um, behaved uh, behaved uh, coarsely, then, uh, you know, it's just self-governing for the most part. You know, you, you don't, you, you, people are too um, uh, intimidated to act that way. You're intimidated by the people and the room around you. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you there. And, I, and usually that works out, but some people just have gall. Some people don't, they have maybe no shame and they'll just speak out or won't be respectful of a performer. And it sounds like that's something you've encountered in both subtle and overt ways. Oh, definitely. And, and I'm not even suggesting, I think that maybe you're suggesting that there's a there's a proper way to behave at a at a show. And I, I think that, I, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's right, but, uh, you know, I think that it's great to go out and to mosh and to yell and to, um, in certain cases, to disrespect the performer. But um, for what I'm doing now and the level of volume that I'm projecting from the stage and the stories that I'm trying to tell, I, yeah, I, I just prefer, you know, sitting and listening. Yes. No, that's like you're saying. It's the room. It's the it's the it's the tone of the evening that you have to uh be yeah, aligned it's the style with style of music, yeah. and it's the age of the performer and the age of the audience, and it's everything. Yeah, it's true. You you mentioned that uh, beyond anything else, you consider yourself a, a Chicagoan, and Chicago has a rich history of, for music, but it also has a rich history for for comedy. We were kind of alluding to that a, a few moments ago, and you are renowned as a songwriter for having a great sense of humor with your work. Tell me about your relationship with. With comedy generally and, and comedy in Chicago, are you are you part? Do you consider yourself sort of part of that world? I've backed into it somehow, and I think a lot of it uh, is through the Second City. You know, I've always been a fan of uh, well, at first the TV show when I was a kid, and um, and just loved it. And of course, that influence um, comes to bear also on early SNL, which uh, and later SNL too, which uh, which I also loved. Um, but as soon as I moved here, I started attending. And um, a while later, when I came into the orbit of Tina Fey, who was a student of mine at uh, the Old Town School of Folk Music, I started um, meeting people that worked there. And um, and ever since then, I've sort of been involved with it, you know, playing there and um, performing there and going to shows and hanging out a little bit with the people that work there, Yeah, some of them. So that's turned out to be something of a you know, of a piece in the fabric of my life, I guess. Yeah, you, you, if, if, from what I understand, you, you were Tina Fey's ukulele teacher? Well, no, she had to learn ukulele for a sketch, um, and a great sketch that she did at, uh, Second City, but, um, I mean, the ukulele is tuned like the guitar pretty much, so she took guitar lessons, which is, uh, oh, I see, okay. Which is this, yeah, which is the sort of uh, um, basic offering at the Old Town School. You know, I don't know if there was a ukulele class at the time, but <laughs> that might have been like two people sitting in a closet. But the uh, the guitar classes are fun, and, uh, you know, there were uh, 15 or so people in her, uh, in the Saturday morning class that she took, and there's uh, plenty of opportunity to play together and, and have fun and have it be a social thing. So that's what we were, that's the kind of classes I was doing there. Right, so she was a student of yours. Did you feel like she had that spark even then? This was when? This was like 20, 20 years ago? This is 
five maybe yeah and and did you you uh, she made an impression on you in some ways well I would say only from the fact that uh, you know when we went around the room and I said what do you do what's your name and where do you work that she said I'm an actress at Second City and I thought oh well that's really that's really neat tell us about that and she obviously didn't want to say much more about that okay she's pretty guarded and um, in some ways a different person I think in those days but uh you know, I, I think I kind of pursued the relationship just based on the information that, you know, that she was an actress there and a writer there. Right, right. Okay. And, and I mean, these two worlds, I, I often interview musicians and comedians on this show, and I find the worlds to be similar in, in many ways. And like I mentioned earlier, you're someone who I think does infuse your work with, with comedy on, on occasion. What Do you have comedic influences per se you mentioned SCTV and you mentioned SNL do you feel like those things have seeped into your work as a, as a songwriter uh, definitely uh, at, at times it's something to sort of resist you know the satirical point of view if you're trying to uh, be sympathetic to your characters and to uh, I, I don't know just to work in a spectrum a little bit larger than satire yeah but um yeah, I can't uh, completely divorce myself from uh, from that point of view. It's so it's so uh, it's so uh, ingrained after you know uh, childhood with Mad Magazine and Saturday Night Live and um, and uh, and all the rest in it. Well, I mean, we we as we're speaking, Chuck Berry just passed away, and uh, growing up listening to Chuck Berry and and the Beatles and Hank Williams, myself, I I was always struck by the humor in their work some of it was sly and, and some of it was quite overt uh did those kinds of things make an impression on you like sort of funny songwriting well yeah that's a whole that's a whole other thing i mean whenever people have asked me about you know uh, uh tell me about this uh, element of humor that uh, sometimes occurs in your <laughs> songwriting you ever uh, worry the da da as if you know i sort of invented it but um I've always loved uh, funny music, you know, whether it's uh, explicitly funny, um, you know, in its aims or whatever, like Stan Freeberg and, and Spike Jones, But also, as you mentioned, you know, a funny song of the Beatles, like Why Don't We Do It in the Road or um, even just a, a lighthearted song like uh, like uh, Martha, my Martha, my uh, Martha, my oh, dear, I'm blanking is my dear. I want some I love Martha, yeah. my dear or, you know. Monkberry Moondelight or these other like uh, sort of cutesy Paul McCartney songs you know I just love them um, and then when I really got into country music as a young adult I found that there was this whole tradition where almost every major country star that you could uh, name before uh, the 1970s uh, from the Leuven Brothers to Buck Owens to Merle Haggard, uh, they all had funny songs that they did just as part of their repertoire of, you know, the idea of a, uh, a Saturday night and going to a show that you would hit the tragic and the comic and several points in between. You would present uh, you would present a, a variety show idea of a repertoire mm -hmm. that uh, moved from uh, through those different tones. So I was... Uh, I guess that that's one of the things that just endeared country music to me that now you could you could have a comedy element you know you could do a song a tragic song about drinking and then a supposedly hilarious song about uh about uh, your uncle falling down on a banana or something and they would all fit into the same thing 
uh, and that. Uh, but of course, at the point where I, I was doing this thing in the 1990s, it did sort of require an explanation because the music had moved on and had fragmented a little bit, and the idea of you know you could be serious and funny from one moment to the next uh, had waned a little bit. Well, I do think that country music is among the first forms to really look life in the eye and and view it as, you know, inherently absurd. You know, singing about death or or your your troubles, it seems to be trivializing these things, but I think it's a way of neutralizing them. And and I don't think many forms, uh, at least early musical forms, did that better than folk and country music. They they just they just sort of dealt with the reality in some cases the somber reality of life. Sure. It just sounds like you, when people approached you about the comic elements of your music, they seem to be, just based on what you said earlier, they seem to be treating that aspect of your work as a novelty. Is that fair? I guess so. I mean, to me, novelty isn't a dirty word. It's immediately sort of uh, perceived as a little bit of a slight or a diminishment of the form. But if... um if uh, I mean uh, you ain't nothing but a hound dog is a bit of a novelty song. I mean there are plenty Absolutely, of uh, yeah. tutti frutti is a novelty song, and uh, uh, you know take an Indian to lunch this week by Stan Freeberg is a novelty song, and there and uh, there's uh, I, I just can't uh, turn my back on those songs. I love those songs. Yeah, and they they infuse your like when you sing a song about someone taking a lot of pills and dying. That, that's that's it's funny, but it's sort of a it's sort of a novelty song on some level. I don't mean to insult you. I hope you're not offended that I said that. No, I'm not offended by anything that you would say, probably. But really, um, that's interesting. I might, get, I might. I'm just warming up here. Maybe I'll yeah, uh, please throw some fastballs, some high heat, <laughs> just see what happens. No, I'm not. I don't, don't want to. I don't want to offend you. But but I, I it just see like you that that's a that's a unique skill I think to present a dynamic show the way I, to be honest I've not seen you play but you have this dynamic catalog which I assume as a performer that must be an amazing feeling to know that you can read the room and take it in a totally different direction just based on you know how how the what the feeling is you know because you have this catalog of different stuff I guess yeah I don't um I mean, we're getting into a different subject, I guess, but I don't really feel 100% in control of, of most of the rooms that I play, that I can yank it this way and that. It's, uh, you know, there's a weight to a room, and uh, the room is the lion, and you're the tamer, but, you know, the lion is a significant animal, and uh, yeah. so uh, so I, I generally don't feel like uh, like I have my whole catalog to work with when I'm facing a room then and that I can uh and that I can follow any particular song with any other particular song that that pops into my mind. Yeah. When you travel nowadays, I mean, you're playing in different cities, you're there's the obviously the political climate is is all sorts of words really. <laughs> it's at the very least it's divisive uh maybe uh, the easiest thing to say is it's just plain odd. Uh, it's more odd maybe than any time I remember. What, what's your take on uh, your country, Wh- what's happening in your country, and also as you've traveled, what's, what, how would you read the—can you kind of gauge the mood of different parts of the country? Do you have a sense of that as a performer, as someone who travels? I think I'm a little bit too much inside the bubble, the proverbial bubble, to get a very accurate feel for it. And most of my information about the Trump people— comes from, uh, you know, not performance or the promoters, say, or the audiences or the 
whatever whoever I talk to after shows, but but rather you know sitting in the Waffle House after or um, or talking to hotel clerks or just talking to people in the you know in the cities as I bump into them. But um, I I feel like it's a it's a something that I uh, feel like addressing. You know, it's it's such a big part of modern life, and I feel like addressing it in the stories that I, I sing. But I think it's boring to address it too uh, summarily or too judgmentally even. In other words, uh, you know, the candidate uh, or the president um, is one thing, but all the people that are behind him or all the people that are concerned about the issues that elevated him to his position uh, are another, are quite another thing. And uh, I, don't, uh, I don't feel any... Uh, any uh, to dismiss them or to diminish their concerns would be a big mistake, I think. So, uh, especially as a you know, like a country songwriter. Well, it's proven. So it, think- yeah, it's proven to be a mistake to underestimate their concerns. I think that's what has fundamentally shocked a lot of people that just didn't recognize those concerns at all, um, and how much power and rancor was behind them. Yeah, I think my feeling, no matter how much they're a part of my audience, I think they're a small part of my audience, but um, but I think my uh, challenge, you know, as it were, is to keep writing country songs that are about modern and ongoing and universal problems, which are the problems of uh, Trump voters as well as other voters, but not to, not to uh, call any names out while I'm doing it and to... Uh, and to keep an element of sympathy and understanding in the storytelling, um, you know, the more that Trumpism sort of degenerates into thuggery, the harder that that gets to do, and the and the less compelling, I guess, it is as uh, as an artistic aspiration. But um, um, and I can see just a little bit of that in uh, you know in uh, if if I reference anything about Donald Trump in a in a tweet or in a uh, like an article, I recently wrote an article for an American songwriter where um, I got some uh, some nasty reaction from some uh, uh, Trump people where they they send you these Facebook messages that you can't respond to, and they they talk about how you know how how I, I'm. Uh, uh, what is the word they 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 sort of have this religious uh comeback to you where the, where you're you get a big black mark next to your name right and you can see how that uh the next step in that is a threat and then the next step is a threat against your family and that it's uh um you know we know this story from Megan Kelly and others that have told it when you get on the wrong side of the people so um Anyway, there's a point at which you know telling sympathetic stories doesn't work anymore. But I'm I'm certainly not near that point. I just get a little bit of a taste of it now and then um, yeah. from touching buttons with people. Well, you you alluded to the fact that the problems of Trump voters shouldn't be uh, ignored, and 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 some of them um, may pop up in your own in your own work. But I think what has frustrated people who don't support Trump and people who are flabbergasted at his supporters is that some of their problems are not necessarily real problems or they're not, you know, they're not rooted in facts just due to certain amount of misinformation. I mean, everyone's experience is everyone's Mm -hmm. experience and you can't argue against that. If someone says, look, I'm not getting what I need from the government or I'm not getting, I didn't get what I need from the last administration. 
how do you really argue that? But it does seem like there's a serious issue now as as more plans are rolled out and more um, programs are actually legislated. I think there's just been this huge, from what I gather, there's been a bit of a wake-up call. How do you negotiate that? How do you talk to people that may have been misled and brought your country to this place? I mean, that's a very, you say you've had some interactions with such people or rather they've contacted you, but do you make an effort to have conversations with people that, you know, may have supported him and and maybe confused about why you don't? Do you have those kinds of conversations? Well, my Facebook interlocutor, which wasn't really an interlocutor because I, I couldn't respond to him, um, I did uh, I did think for a couple of minutes. Well, I spent probably 10 minutes trying to look for him elsewhere on the Internet and find another way to get back to him because he, he had a long posting about all of the sins of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for a few minutes I had the idea of, uh, answering not each charge, you know, specifically, but uh, of just uh, of just getting back to him, so he so that he couldn't have the last word. But uh, but there wasn't a way to get through to him, and I think more generally, it's just not my job to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. engage in political discussions with people about legislation and about Benghazi and about, you know, how much money the Clinton Foundation took from the Russians. And all of this is, I mean, I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of generally apprised of it in, in newspapers, but I don't think that I have the standing to argue it. And I don't think that, I don't think it's part of my job to be in these discussions with people. Um, you know, not to mention the fact that to peel off a certain fraction of my fan base or whatever is uh, is not is not in my interest. So <laughs> you kind of don't want to go there for that reason either. But um, I think you know, I think when it gets to the point where I have to be doing that with people, then civilization is, will really like be in the dumper. But uh, but do you do you personally? I know you you you're, I appreciate your diplomacy, but do you feel that this rash of misinformation and and sort of both sides. Yeah, the information is a problem. The alternative facts are a problem for sure. Right. But again, civilizationally, not not at this point and not uh, not uh, at this point for where we are and not for what I'm trying to do, go around, sing songs to people. Right. (laughs) Right. Again, back to maybe your role in all of this as a as a professional musician. It's not really your job to be highlighting these things, but they may manifest themselves. These issues might manifest themselves in your work somehow? Yeah, I mean, sure. And all of us, all of us, I guess you could say, have a role in getting past this moment. And, and, and the job is to, the job is to peel away uh, people that are convinced that, uh, that Trump is the answer to their problems, in my view. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking as a citizen and not as a musician, maybe, but uh, but I think that that's uh, I think that that's uh, what what we need to do. You know, maybe even to not to speak too grandiosely, but to save our constitutional democracy. Yeah, uh, we need to uh, we need to um, uh, be talking about the same information and 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 need to have rational discussions and need to ultimately convince uh, people that are in the sway of uh, a huckster that uh, and, and and we need to find other solutions to their to their problems obviously and and one of the things I think that Trump has unfortunately done is co-opted 
you know, uh, the, the idea that a, a country can control its immigration levels isn't that offbeat or offensive of an idea. But since he's sort of co-opted the conversation on one side of that, it's sort of become an offensive idea to people. So we need to get the issues themselves, I think, yeah. back to uh, a place where we can discuss them without uh, without the thuggery and the rancor. We've been floating in and out of discussions about about comedy, and, and you mentioned Trump co-opting uh, various things. I think he's actually co-opted comedy a little bit. He doesn't take the job seriously and uses most opportunities to try to just do little mini roasts of people, it seems. Um, at the same time, you know, we as, because you follow comedy, I, I think it, my sense of comedy right now is that I don't remember a time where comedy has been taken as seriously and has had as much sort of social efficacy as it has. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As now, there's so many fake news, not fake news, that's the wrong term to use now. <laughs> I'm harkening back to Norm McDonald's weekend update, I think. But, uh, mm-hmm. but these sort of satiric news shows, uh, there's like five of them now, whereas at one point it was just the weekend update and the daily show. And everyone has to, every comedian has to most comedians anyway feel compelled to speak out and obviously twitter is a, f- uh, a platform where a lot of satire and you know memes and all these things it's just like and it has an impact it's having more of an impact it's creating more conversation uh than i i, I can recall do you see that as someone who follows comedy do you see comedy having a, a larger role in in how your uh country is functioning even right now i don't think it has that much of a uh of an impact, otherwise Trump wouldn't have been elected. I think those people are speaking to their own audiences, and they don't, and uh, they don't, they don't reach that much outside of them. I don't think when John Oliver uh, is at his uh, is at his uh, loudest and at his uh, and his most uh, bracing that uh, that he's convincing anybody that might be on the other side. Do you think it's had the opposite effect? I don't know. I, I think don't... so. I mean, to yeah. me, it's uh, it's analogous to the Facebook post that I wake up to uh, from, uh, you know, my vast cadre of left-wing friends every day. It's just like people, angry people, lathering each other up. I don't think it has much of an effect outside of that. Hmm. What about, uh, there's more... It's p- nice to think that it might, but... Uh, you think in reality... It, it doesn't make sense that it would. Huh. What, it's a form of social criticism, but you're saying on a fundamental level it doesn't actually impact the people they're criticizing. I don't know. I, I, I guess I'd have to see some putative evidence that it does. But uh. Those recent um, forums about health care, 
I, again, I don't know. I, uh, it's confusing. Uh, you know, I've been very supportive of the various protests and marches that have gone on in your country and around the world. But when you step back and a couple weeks later, the thing that was being protested or something like it has actually now been enacted. You're like, well, geez, like what, what are we doing? How can you actually affect change? I mean, do you think much about what, I mean, you, obviously we have <laughs> a system set up where we vote for things and that's the way you do it, but is there anything else you do in the, in the face of what's happening right now? Um, it's a big questions for you, I realize. <laughs> yeah, they're so far from uh, from my everyday life, and I'm probably ashamed and embarrassed that they are so far that uh, that I live in this uh, this uh, self centered world. Of <laughs> but you do, I, 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 I gather you do think about these things. I do. I mean, I think that, uh, but I I don't think uh, I don't think as deeply as I should, and so I don't have as ready an answer as I should. But I think that the the women's protest, like the 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 protests that I see that uh, are broad-based and ob- and obviously represent a cross-section of uh, Americans, that seems to me a very effective public uh, tool. And then uh, uh, the on the other side, when legislation is rammed through at midnight and in secrecy, uh, when that happens, I think that then we, the other side, have seem to have the upper hand. You know, we we might not have the upper hand at that moment uh, tactically, but that they're reduced to doing that, I think, shows that uh, that uh, they're fighting a rearguard action. Hmm. And and that to you is, as you say, that's a f- that is something to be <laughs> at least a little hopeful about. Like they they are they are having to behave in these cowardly manners, essentially. I think so. I mean, I think I just have to be optimistic, and I think that the system will catch up with, with Trump. It's been two months, and uh, and uh, and almost every day has been a new outrage. And I think you know, I had a I had like a I don't want to say a friend, but uh, a guy at a, that ran a publishing company that I was involved with for a while in the '90s that was a big uh was a pretty hardcore republican and he said this guy Ken Starr is like uh he said he's like Columbo you know and Bill Clinton can uh, you know think that he's so shrewd but he's ultimately going to be ensnared in the logic and he's coming down Ken Starr's like Columbo right and uh i just thought hmm but i think in this uh i think in this case that the system is ultimately it's going to work a little bit more slowly than you might like but i think it's uh, i think he's going to come down. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you feeling these questions. Again, I know they're probably a little afield of what maybe you're used to talking to, but I, I do appreciate it. I just, you know, when I have a, particularly as a Canadian, speaking with Americans on the show, and Americans who I think when they express themselves, they do so as thoughtfully as someone like you, the way you do, I mean, in your work, I just think it's good to get these insights. So I'm sorry for putting you on the and spot. And the system is, as David Frum says, the system is people. So th- some of the people that are needed are conscientious Republicans who might be a, you know, a minority, but we do still have John McCain and Lindsey Graham and other um, Republicans of intelligence and, and conscience. And so... Uh, and so more, much more weight is on those people than, than ever before, I think. Yeah, and I think that these party lines are going to start to disintegrate further um, because I think there is a knee-jerk reaction among some to just vote for the best interest of their party. But I'm starting to see 
that facade crack a little bit and people are trying to vote in the best interest of, of constituents and the, the country itself, which is good, I would think. <laughs> it's, it's good. It's a healthy sign, I think. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about someone. We've been having a conversation about outspokenness a little bit and, and other things. Uh, one of the, your primary collaborator, collaborators over the years is Steve Albini, who's been a frequent guest on on this show. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that relationship, where it began, and and, and why it works as well as it has been. It works because he is an engineer, and he has this very strict idea about his realm, you know. he uh, And his realm is, uh, you know, brands of tape and microphone placement and... and uh, and uh, at least some aspects of of mix, but I like to be the one that sort of uh, arranges the music and hires the musicians and is sort of the leader of the comping if there is comping to be done between takes and things like that. And um, so, in our distinct realms, and the and uh, and knowing about the realms and understanding more about his realm and um, and and the whole um, the whole functioning of the relationship that we have has been largely a result of, of learning from him. Hmm. So uh, I met him in 1986 through a friend and and uh, did a recording session that uh, Halloween night of that year in 86 at his uh, at his house. He was recording his house then in the basement. Right. And, uh, and liked the guy and uh, just continued to uh, to uh, hire him and hang out with him and work with him over the, uh, you know, 30, I guess 31 years since. Well, he's something of a, well, I think it's fair to say, I have a, a, a tremendous amount of respect for Steve, and he's been very kind to me on, on this show and in my in my work as a as a journalist, but I know he's a bit of a character. Do you have any particular stories that come to mind when you think of working with Steve? Anything he's, I think he's a, he's not a, a averse to the odd shenanigan, is I think where I'm going. And I just wonder if you have a, a humorous anecdote or, or any kind of story that comes to mind when you think of a fond memory of him um i wouldn't say there are a lot of shenanigans but he's such a consistently entertaining person to be around you know he speaks in these uh you know he, he has a very sparklingly uh verbal wit mm-hmm. when he speaks and uh I, I probably aspire to that myself when i speak but don't quite uh, reach the heights that he does but i definitely like hearing him uh, speak and as far as uh, you know, one thing that I remember that he said one time was that, uh, uh, which stood out a little bit because he uh, he doesn't often he doesn't often uh, in a way even make musical contributions when we work together. If you know what I mean, like yeah. I, the fact that I work in a different genre that that he knows than the one that he usually works in and knows about, and the fact that he's uh, I think a little bit. Uh, um, intellectually humble, you know, to say, you know, to the steel player, why don't you do this or something like that? Like he would never do that. Right. So I'm not, I'm not accustomed to hearing that much, uh, um, what you would call strictly speaking, musical input from him. But one time uh, there was a horn section that I'd brought in for a tune. Uh, I forget which tune. And it wasn't sounding that good just as we were sort of setting up mics and hearing, hearing sounds come back from the, from the room and he just he said to me kind of uh almost to himself but he said uh 
I'm not getting a real strong I can play vibe from the trombonist. <laughs> <laughs> Which I remember first because of the, the funniness of that locution, but also because um, it pinpointed what was the matter, and I hadn't been able to tell that the problem related to that one person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need that honesty in that environment for sure. And uh, who better to know than sort of a, someone who's somewhat objective to the uh, process in, in a weird way? That's that's funny. <laughs> yeah, well, he has a really unemotional uh, relationship to the music, or I should say that uh, he's able to go into that mode when he was re- when he's recording. I think that he sees that as uh, just a basic part of his job, where he's listening to. I don't know, room sound and do a, you know, some kind of an, uh, maybe a, a microphone artifice. And again, you know, the fact that the trombone isn't quite, uh, the intonation of the trombone isn't quite on. Whereas when I'm listening to the music, I'm, I find my, it's hard to focus on uh, those. Um, I probably should be focusing on, but it's difficult for me to focus on those micro cosmic. Uh, technical aspect of it you know yeah it's just like when you're it's your song and you're singing it and you're listening to the group as a whole and it's people that you know there's so much um there's so much other there's so much baggage that comes with all that yeah he the, the last time he was on the show he actually told the story about him being too far too into the band and the experience of making a record to actually capture it properly uh and i think that had a profound impact on him in terms of trying to have a bit of detachment you know viewing himself as not part of the experience but like part of the experience but you know what i mean not not observe like <laughs> yeah i think you know what i mean i think he was like i gotta was he keep talking about a specific band yeah we i had uh steve on with ian mckay and they were in conversation and so we were talking about his experience working with fugazi and and on the early sessions for their album in on the kill taker um which is kind of the the session has sort of started circulating as a demo um and Ultimately, Fugazi made the record uh, again, remade the record, and they didn't use the sessions with Steve. And Steve and so Steve and our conversation kind of acknowledged that he kind of biffed it. He 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 kind of he, he didn't quite get it, and he thinks he was just too immersed emotionally and and even socially in the experience to actually do his job properly in that ex- in that instance. And I think that's it. I, th- I my sense of it is that really. Psh- that really had a profound effect on how he approached uh, sessions from that point forward. Yeah, he's he's kind of like uh, he's pretty monastic in his uh, in his work habits and his approach. So I think uh, getting emotionally involved with uh, with uh, what's going on would would run totally counter to that. And yeah. you know, personally, I think that um, you know I went to see these guys uh, speak at a Naris event a little while ago, and their names are Terry Date and. Uh, and Nick, uh, long last name beginning with an R, but anyway, they were heavy metal producers, and uh, and I was just entranced by their accounts of their experience, and immediately wanted to work with either or both of them. I think that it's such a strong uh, asset to have a guy in your corner that doesn't know about you know about uh, about your musical genre. Mm. I would have zero interest in working with some um, uh, some guy with a long Americana or bluegrass resume but a guy that's that has a uh, distinguished resume in punk or heavy metal is much more appealing hmm. that I'm, I, I totally can see where that's coming from I think some people might be surprised by that but that makes more sense to me than than 
than working with someone within you, it, it, there's too many cooks I think is where you're coming from right there's just too many if, if too many people have ideas it can you can lose the coherence of I mean do you actually seek external input like do, does your uh, do you ask your wife's opinion do you ask your bandmate's opinion on, on where a song's going um, not when I'm writing a song so much um, I think probably 10 or 20 years ago I relied on my wife's opinion more than I do now but um, but I don't play um, a lot of things for her now before um, recording them. Hmm. Um, I feel more confident in my, in my own judgment. But when it comes to um, when it comes to um, evaluating a mix or a performance, uh, you know that you're trying to record or um, or most other things really outside of the songwriting thing, I, I do like to have input. Okay, yeah, that's good. Well, I mean. Clearly, things are working for you. I, I meant to say earlier, congratulations on your Grammy nominations for Upland Stories. It's that must have been. Actually, I don't know. What was that like for you? Were you obviously a point of pride? I haven't got or? a Juno yet, so I'm still not satisfied. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, I'll work on that. I've served on some of those juries here up in Canada. I can uh, see if I can help you out there. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this record. Did you actually attend the ceremony? I did. Yeah. What was that like? It was. Uh, it was fun. That. Um, the biggest surprise to me and sort of the focus of the whole weekend, we were there two days, me and my wife and kids, um, was the ultimate, sorry, the telecast part of it, which was the part that I was least looking forward to probably, but uh, I just didn't have any idea that it would be fun. I knew that I'd be three and a half hours inside this room with 21,000 people in it <laughs> listening to music that I didn't know anything about and thought that I probably didn't like that well. But I was just so impressed by all the music and uh, I mean I'm going to sound like a big dummy but Beyonce and Bruno Mars and um, Lady Gaga and Katy Perry uh, and Chance the Rapper and Pentatonix and oh my god one person after the next and the thing was that uh, you know I didn't I didn't I wasn't really impressed that it was all great music or, or well you know or great lyrics or anything like that some of it wasn't but um, but the performances of course the, the, the production the sets and all that were awesome to behold yeah um but the vocal performances from once i mean beyonce and uh, bruno mars holy god you know they would just <laughs> and you look at them live they just turn on the mic and they sing and so they're doing the same job that i do you know what i mean but they're yeah. just doing it really really well and um and uh i should include adele in that too i forgot about her but yeah uh, yeah I mean, on that level, just hearing one great singer after another for three and a half hours, it was it was unbelievable. The Bruno Mars thing was, uh, among the things he did that night, if I recall correctly, was this tribute to Prince. And uh, mm -hmm. that seemed quite impressive on the television. What was that like in the room? It was great. He did like the guitar um, solos and everything. It was just, uh, I think he did things that people didn't even know he could do. Yeah. Yeah, his guitar solo was cool, and uh, yeah, I mean, Prince is another guy that I don't know much about. I mean, I, I know less than uh, I should about popular music in general, but... Uh, I, I had the impression so. that you were a, a very, um, at some point, were a very, <laughs> maybe not now, but you were quite an open-eared uh, pop music listener on some level. Don't you occasionally uh, do the odd uh, cover of uh, a popular song that people might not expect you to do? I mean, you did a tribute to Michael Jackson, which I think some people found surprising. Uh, 
Is that something you used to do and don't do now? Like keep keep tabs on things, or am, am I wrong? Well, um, no. I mean, I was listening to Michael Jackson in the '60s when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, it, and then I, I found when I was in, in teens and twenties that he was just unavoidable. I wasn't so much a fan, but it was just you know you go to a mall and you'd hear it. Um, and now the stuff that plays in malls now, for some reason, just doesn't penetrate my middle-aged skull right. as easily. So now I need to hear uh, it sort of is much more serendipitous or or my kids will be listening to something and kind of force it on me um, uh, for me to know what's, you know, happening in the popular realm at all. So... Um, I, I don't so much avoid it. Well, I, I avoid it to the extent that I, I'm not. I've sort of learned over my life that that's not where the stuff that I like is congregated, is in the realm of what's selling a lot of numbers right now. Right. Um, but uh, but I've learned where the stuff that uh, the stuff that I like the best uh, just lies more. Tends to lie more off the beaten path. Right. Um, so that I don't that's it's definitely not my first go to is to is to go to the billboard charts and uh see oh that looks good that looks good I'll try this and that you know I, I've tried that and it, for me it just doesn't work but at the same time you left um, the grammys did you when you left the grammys but did when you, f- you do find stuff that's yeah. super popular and that is and that hits your heart um for some reason it's more um it's more impressive you know, I guess because you do have this idea, oh, it's popular, so it's probably a little junky. You know, that's my kind of snobbish sure. prejudice. So uh, when there's something about it that uh, that you really like, it's such a pleasant surprise that it's a little bit uh, there's a disproportion to it. Did you end up pursuing any of the artists that impressed you at the Grammys after the fact? Did you track as far that? as buying their records or something? Oh yeah, listening to stuff. Yeah. No. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> it was <laughs> you were just I think it sounds like you were just mostly surprised by the experience. Uh, well, uh, I don't think that I could recapitulate the happy experience of hearing Bruno Mars, you know, seeing Bruno Mars at a short distance just singing into a microphone. Yeah. By buying one of his records. I really don't. Right. Okay. Okay. So and, I mean, were you treated well? The Grammys, you know, the Junos, it's a bit of a schmoz, right? There's just a lot of stuff going on. Did you, did you, you what does that word mean? Schmoz? Oh, uh, it means like a, like a, like a messy gathering or a, uh, I, I hope I'm not making this word up. You never heard this word before? Is it a Yiddish term? It might be. I think my, for some reason, my uh, wife from Alberta would use that. She's not, she's not Jewish or anything, but she just uses that word. And I think it's infiltrated. I hope I haven't offended anyone by going down this road and employing the word. I'm not. This is not meant to be a form of cultural appropriation. I just schmoz came out of me, and I think it's just like a a mess. Like if if she's like, I was like, how is the Costco? She's like, oh, it was a schmoz. You know, lots of tra- like cars and people. That's what I associate that word with. Maybe if anyone listening knows the proper meaning, my wife often gets things wrong with the, in terms of little words meaning things, and I'm like, what? That's not what that means. She used to pronounce the movie Hoosiers. As Hoosiers, which I thought was odd. <laughs> I thought that was that very strange. That reminds me that Dick Cavett said that he had a neighbor when he was a kid whose name was uh, Outhouse, and uh, <laughs> they pronounced it Othusi. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, see, just, 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 you see a word and you just take it in the direction you want to take it. Anyway, exactly. it, it can be, uh, you know, a, it's, it's stressful. There's a lot going on and you're just one of many hundreds of uh, nominees. I just, you had a good experience, it sounds like. Well, it wasn't something I would necessarily do for fun all the time. It was, a, you know, it was a, an aspect of my work, and I wanted to see it. You know, we pursued it avidly, the Grammy uh, nomination, and so it didn't just come out of the sky. And once that, we, once we had it uh, in our hands, we wanted to. We felt like it was totally necessary to follow up and to be present and to, um, you know, at the very least, to learn more about the about the about the whole game so that we could pursue it more intelligently next time. You have to apply for that award, right? Yeah. Yeah, you have to pick out, you know, one of the things I had to do was like to see what are the categories, what am I most likely to be competitive in, and then you look at the record, you think, well, what song is going to like be the one that gets the most serious consideration for this or for that? You know, there's one category called performance and another called song. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's no end to sort of thinking about the gaming of it, um, but uh, but ultimately you go by what the formal language tells you and think, uh, well, the lyrics to this song are more meaningful than the lyrics to that song, and the and the performance elements of of this come through more vividly than this other one, and and that kind of thing. It's got to be a bit weird to do just thinking about it in, in those terms. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like you did it, so. Maybe it wasn't as odd. I guess. I mean, I kind of think that no matter how big your act is, you know, I mean, if you were Beyonce and had all sorts of advice and and this hot uh, management team helping you out, I think at the end of the day, you're probably still in your room thinking and listening to your music, and and it's still your decision to uh, to say, you know, this is going to represent me in this category. Um, so it's and it's uh yeah it's i think it's uh, a trick for all of us to try to examine our stuff from a from an objective perspective and then to put upon that also the scrim of all these you know formal rules and to imagine who's going to be in the room listening to your music and how they personally are going to perceive this or that it's it's just uh there's no end to the gaming did you perform while uh, during the the weekend there not exactly there was a an event at the Troubadour, a uh, little club in L.A., yeah. uh, the night before the ceremony, which was a tribute to Loretta Lynn. And there were um, a few of the nominees at that. In fact, I did a duet with a um, fellow nominee from one of my categories, Laurie McKenna. We did a duet on uh, You're the Reason Our Kids Are Ugly <laughs> uh, by Loretta and Conway. And uh, that was kind of an interesting thing in itself because... Uh, Oh, do you have time for a quick story about that one? I have lots of time. I mean, I, I was winding down, but uh, of course, uh, please tell stories. That's what well, if anybody's made it this far, this is actually a somewhat entertaining story, <laughs> as opposed to everything I've said so far. No, you've been but, great. Uh, you've been a great guest. I hope you're not self-conscious <laughs> about this. I've been enjoying this immensely. Again, having been immersed in your music, it's nice. I like this. I like talking to you, and I enjoy... You know, I, I'm enjoying myself. I'm sorry you're having such a horrible time, Robbie, but it's good. I think it's good. <laughs> so please, tell your story. <laughs> please. <laughs> uh, so Lori, I just met before we before we sang. I didn't know her beforehand, but she's, um, I think she's uh, a sensitive soul, I would say. You know, she was, she was a very sweet person, and uh, I think uh, 
I just think her her musical aesthetic is uh, is quieter and uh, and maybe humbler than mine or something. But hmm. we were doing this duet on this very uh, uh, comically vulgar song, right? You're the reason our kids are ugly, <laughs> and and it's pretty much an insult competition between the wife and the husband in the song. They just go back and forth, right? And um, there's a part at the end. In case your listeners don't know this great masterpiece of American songwriting, there's a part at the end where uh, the two of them do what sounds like improvising Conway and Loretta. It might have been scripted. It probably was. But uh, anyway, you know, (laughs) she says, you and your stinking dandruff. And then he says, yeah, you and your hair and curlers. And they go back and forth for about 30 seconds. Well, so uh, in in deciding how we perform this song and rehearsing with the band and all that um, uh, at the sound check... I said to her, you know, I memorized this song. I, I know the song, but I don't know the improv at the end by memory. So why don't we just make that up? And she said, yeah, that's fine. So <laughs> I think I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. At this point in the story, everybody knows where this is going. <laughs> so in the performance, we get through the song, and then I started the improv part, and I said, uh, Lori, you know, you look at your hair. You couldn't put up a, a little makeup on. You look so terrible. What's the matter? Why can't you just make a little effort? And she says, she says, well, um, I had a flight in from Boston today. <laughs> and I didn't have time oh, at the hotel. And she said, just as if that I was truly, ins- truly insulted. She responded logically <laughs> as Lori McKenna. And uh, so... I decided that I was just going to dig in deeper, and I and for my second line, I said, uh, "Well, that must have been a really long flight because you look like hell." And then she said, "Yeah, it was really long. In fact, da da da." And then, <laughs> man, so I, I was just like sinking, and no one was laughing, and um, <laughs> and we were on two different planets with this thing. And so at this point, I dug in deeper yet by reverting to a line that I had thought of in the audience while I was watching other people sing beforehand. And I said to her, uh, you know, if if you just looked a little better, maybe I could get an erection, you know, again, like I used to. And she said, that's taking it too far. And, and then the song ended. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. And then she beat me in the category the next afternoon at the ceremony, <laughs> which was the perfect cap to that. Sympathy vote, perhaps. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, I can't believe you went in not knowing where that was going to go. I actually was worried it would be worse, that she would just, you know, crumble and a ball of tears there, but it sounds like she just, maybe she gamed you. Maybe that's, maybe it was a prank on you. I think she might have, yeah. She definitely wasn't uh, uh, upset by anything that <laughs> happened. She was just not <laughs> playing the game. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sorry you didn't win the Grammys. Uh, you know, you I assume uh, from that experience, you now know uh, what to do in order to win. Did you have plans uh, <laughs> for your next uh, next recording? That's a funny way to put it. <laughs> do you have? Yeah, pl- I know what to do. You know, you know what to do. Are you I work- know who to blow next time. Yeah. <laughs> Are you working on a, a follow up uh, to this last record? Not exactly. I'm kind of uh, worriedly thinking about a follow up and not sure what to do, but uh, hmm. thinking about it anyway. You've got some shows coming up in at least. I think you're doing Texas uh, tour of Texas, right? 
Well, I'm constantly playing. It's kind of the way that I make money usually. So, um, yeah, the next uh, run is in Texas, and then after that, uh, some Midwestern dates, and uh, on and on and on. All right. Well, that's excellent. Uh, and, and if people want to learn more about you on the Internet, obviously they can send you a, 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 a dangerous-sounding message over Facebook. We've learned that. Is there, <laughs> are there other ways for them to <laughs> keep tabs on you? Well, I'm very accessible, so yeah. But want to contact me? It's uh, it's usually pretty easy. I mean, my and my um, um, my shows are listed on Polestar and the usual places, including my website. Right, and Bloodshot Records is your home. Right, home away from home, home again. Yeah, so people can go to their their site. Is there a song from Upland Stories that you can choose for us to go out on here, Robbie? The one that was uh, nominated was called Alabama at Night, so maybe that one. Okay, but again, it didn't win. So I don't know. Do we want to actually give it more <laughs> attention? <Again. laughs> no, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful song. It's the, the song that kicks off the record, so maybe it's a, a nice way to introduce people who don't uh, know your work to it. So, yeah, this is Alabama. Another one that goes to the Trump stuff that we were talking about is called America is a Hard Religion. I was going to ask you specifically about that song. That's the only note I had, but I felt like... Uh, a, we sort of covered aspects of it, and B, it seemed to make you a bit uncomfortable. But if you want to go to that song and want to uh, expand a little bit about uh, about it, that would be fine with me. What, what would you prefer? Oh, God. I hope I wasn't too uncomfortable. If there no, were pauses no, no, in what no. I was saying. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, there were long pauses in what I was saying, but I was trying to organize my thoughts because I hardly ever speak out loud about this stuff, right. except sometimes to my son on the phone. Right. Um, no, it so was... So I just didn't have... It was insightful. I'm used to getting through these interviews and just like, you know, ripping off a lot of boilerplate from the last six interviews. So so it's fair to say this was a totally insightful and enjoyable experience for you. <laughs> I'm just trying to get my, make myself feel better because I didn't want to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but you, you actually learned some things about yourself potentially by talking to me. That's all I want out of the show. I hope that happened. I, I feel... I feel 12 inches taller after this. Great. That's all I want. That's all I want. Well, I think we should go to America's Heart I didn't say a foot because I didn't want it to be incomprehensible to Canadians with their odd measurement systems. <laughs> I know what a foot is. Give me a break here. I, I know how things work. Uh, I get around. Anyway, America is a hard religion. I think we should go out on that. It's a great song. What does that uh, sentiment mean to you? It's a phrase that I thought that red state and blue state Americans could uh, assent uh, to. It's not quite blasphemous. Uh, it's almost patriotic, uh, but it's also, uh, it sort of speaks to uh, the difficulty of, of existing in that country, maybe. I don't know. I'm Now I'm trying to do an explanation for your song, and I feel like I'm doing a really half-baked job. But maybe that's close. Is that right? I think that if you think of Americanism as a religion, then, uh, and I don't know if any Canadians feel that way about, uh, about their own compact with their country, but, uh, but once you think of America that way, as an American, a lot of things kind of uh, click into place, I think. You know, just, uh, you, you can't just uh, decide to be an American. You have to, you have to, uh, you have to, uh, um, you have to undergo uh uh, you have to go before a panel and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and show your uh, your knowledge of the subject and uh, and you have to uh, undergo sacrifice 
and uh, sometimes you have to sacrifice the lives of your of your children. You know, in other words, uh, uh, offer the the biggest imaginable sacrifice uh, to, uh, as an American. There's a certain um, expectation you, that you'll have an unerring faith in the leaders. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was going to say next. Yeah. yeah. No matter what it does to you, you know, the worse that it does to you, the stronger that your faith gets. Right. Well, I I think that's well put, and and I I appreciate the. Uh, I appreciate this song. So let's go out on that. Let's go out on America's a Hard Religion. Again, this is from the new album, Upland Stories. Robbie, uh, this really was a, an immense pleasure for me. So thank you so much for this uh, time and, and best of luck with everything in the, in the future. My pleasure. Thanks for making it happen, Vish. Some rule from the sky, some inch cross the ground. Their bent backs turn to all heavy and above sends down. Scratching pub from this earth, what gold it may give. Fattening on feasts to come, laboring now to live. And America's a hard religion. Not just anyone may endure. America is a hard religion Some never do surrender Sent to a savage land Mother knows not why To plant a seed in rocky soil And perhaps to die Freedom come it may To this child instead Freedom comes, freedom goes, father is surely dead. And America's a hard religion, not just anyone may enter. America's a hard religion, some never do surrender. Test our hearts, doubts to make us strong Cheered by loved ones that from the graveyard say All my tears surely gone after I fly away And America's a hard religion Not just anyone may enter America's a hard religion Some never do surrender America is a Hard Religion by Robbie Folks. That is from his new album, Upland Stories. You can learn more about it at bloodshotrecords.com and you can follow uh, Robbie at, on his website, which is robbiefolks.com. And he is actually, as I speak to you, he has a bunch of uh, tour dates coming up throughout uh, Texas and uh, all over the United States, actually, throughout April and May. Uh, yeah, so go to RobbieFolks.com for more information. Robbie, thanks again for being on the show and uh, and chatting with me. I enjoyed that very, very much. And he's great. But that's It's great. This record is great. He's great. All his records are great. I got all his records now, and they're great. So I'm glad he was on the show. So thanks, Robbie. 
Hey, this show is uh, Creative Control. This is the 311th episode of this podcast, and it would not be possible without uh, sponsors, fine, fine sponsors, like like Pizza Trocadero, the, the best pizzeria in Guelph. You can call them for pickup or delivery at 519-829-2444, or check them out at trocaderoguelph.ca. Also, The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, movie theater, and restaurant located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. And you can learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. And for the finest coffee anywhere, try Planet Bean Freshly Roasted Fair Trade Certified Organic Coffee. They have three cafes in Guelph, and they also distribute their coffee beans throughout Ontario. For more information, visit planetbeancoffee.com. This show is available uh, pretty much everywhere that there are podcasts now, so try and track it down. However you listen to podcasts, I think you can find Creative Control now, so... If what you're listening to now isn't the thing you normally listen to, check the thing you normally listen to and download and subscribe and rate and review and follow the podcast and please spread the word about it. Again, throughout the month of April, doing a thing where if you pledge $10 or more, you get a t-shirt pretty much automatically while supplies last. I I mentioned at the top of the show, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep the podcast going. Follow us on uh, Twitter. Like us on Twitter. Follow us on... uh, No, wait. What was I saying? Like us on Facebook, I guess. And talk to us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter. And listen to a version of the show every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time via CFRU.ca or if you're in the area at CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. That's it for another episode and for me. I will talk to you, I hope, very, very soon. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.